Today's episode is brought to you by www.thestardraft.com. Hollywood award season is right around the corner, but let's be real, it never really left. Anyway, that means it's time to play everyone's favorite fantasy game. And no, I'm not talking about fantasy foosball. Draft a team of celebrities, and when they score wins and nominations through award season, your team earns points. At the end of Oscar night, the top score across all leagues will take home a cash prize. So create a league with friends or join a league to make new ones. Drafts are held every night. Play today at www.thestardraft.com. Draft celebrities, slay your friends, win money. Well, it looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. That it can be about the performance and not the politics. This moment is so much bigger than me. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. And thank all of you who voted for me. And all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I deserve this. Thank you. And welcome back to this month's episode of Academy Queens. Hey, Daddy, I want a brand new car. I'm Joey Gentile. And I promise not to waste my time on girls. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And this is Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the Academy Awards per decade per category. And this is the class of 1951, our second to last episode of the regular series. And uh, yeah, Brandon, how are you? How you feeling about this lineup? What's new? Tell the people. Oh, I'm doing all right. I um I just did my taxes this morning, so that was exciting. Um, for a little time stamp on this, I guess. Um, now we're here talking about this lineup. This is an interesting one. We have a few uh, questionable category placements, and of course, it's one the listeners are looking forward to because your fave Vivian Lee is nominated here, winning her second Oscar. So I'm sure people are going to be tuning in for that. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> the we, okay, so the f- funniest thing about this is, like, before we even knew that this was going to be an option, I actually, when quarantine first hit, I put on Facebook, like, one of those quick polls, and I was like, you know, help me with the blind spot, and Twitter voted for A Streetcar Named Desire, so I'm very f- fresh on my first watch off of this by, like, two years, and then obviously, you know, I revisited for this just to make sure to solidify my my thoughts. Woof. <laughs> I don't get it. And I have questions for you and maybe others, but holy shit. My God. But um, I recently joined your club, sir. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I hit the dirty 30, so I'm officially... Back in what is considered gay death, or I shouldn't say back, but I'm, I am to what is considered gay death. I don't know. I love it. I know it sounds weird. It's just a number, but there was something on Wednesday when I woke up and I was like, I can feel the new slate. I feel, yeah. you know, it feels good. Gay ARP should be uh, mailing you your card soon. <laughs> gay ARP. That has to be completely trademarked by you now. <laughs> I literally thought of it 10 seconds ago while you were talking. Fantastic. Keep it up that wit. That's why I love you. Um, But yeah, I I definitely agree. There are some discussions to be had here with um, with, uh, you know, who is in which category. I will say, though, one of these nominees 
had me bawling. Oh. Like, I, I've i never responded to a, um, a nomination like one of these ladies before. Okay. In a good way? In a very good way. But here's the kicker. I won't obviously talk about who it was until I rink. That way I don't give it away. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I um I walked away from this viewing with one of my favorite all-time nominations. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested to uh, talk about that, or very intrigued, I should say. But uh, do you have anything else before we get started? No, I say we just jump in. All right. Well, who do you think I'm going to choose? Let's start there. Well, in supporting, I was going back and forth between a couple, um, Lee Grant and uh, Joan uh, Bladell. For some reason, those two seem very you, um, for two very different reasons, of course. But um, I think I'm just going to go with Lee Grant um, in supporting. And lead, um, I guess Jane Wyman. I'm really not sure with lead, because you have a couple category uh, questionable nominations. And, uh, of course, you know, Vivian Lee. So I feel like it's a 50-50 shot, and I'm just going to go with Jane Wyman just because. All right. Well, I think you will agree with the Academy with Vivian Lee. Um, I just don't see you going for anyone else here. Supporting, though, I don't think you'd agree with the Academy with Kim Hunter. I honestly want to say you would say Mildred Dunnock. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm sticking with it. So with that said, your uh, supporting actresses of 1951 were... Joan Blondell in The Blue Veil, Walt Krasner Productions Incorporated, RKO Radio. Mildred Dunnock in Death of a Salesman, the Stanley Kramer Company, Columbia. Lee Grant in Detective Story, Paramount. Kim Hunter in A Streetcar Named Desire. Charles K. Feldman Group Productions, Warner Brothers. And Thelma Ritter in The Mating Season. All right, let's start with Lee Grant as uh, her character's name is just Shoplifter. Um, so Lee Grant as Shoplifter in Detective Story. This is her first of four nominations. And going into Oscar night, she has a Golden Globe nomination for supporting. In uh, Detective, let's try that again. In Detective Story, again, Lee Grant plays Shoplifter, who is this woman who gets caught shoplifting a purse and then kind of deals with what happens at the police station with her crime, but also views everything else happening at the same time. Um, so in a way, Lee Grant is like the narrator without narration here in Detective Story. Obviously, too, this was um, this was a rocky time for Lee Grant as right after her nomination, she became a part of the blacklist, which was some bullshit. But uh, Brandon, let's talk. So I really like this nomination. Um, you had mentioned, you know, her rocky career that she would go on to have soon after this. Um, just to give a quick shout out to former guest Izzy from Be Kind Rewind. She recently released a video about Lee Grant and that time period in her career, which is excellent. So if anyone listening has not seen that video, I highly recommend checking it out on YouTube. Um, but as far as the performance is concerned, I think Lee Grant is amazing here. I think she is hilarious. I was cracking up toward the end. It's one of her final lines when she's leaving, um, where she thanks her sister for being sexy. Uh, it's just so funny. It's a sort of vivacious performance. Um, 
really comical in this film that has a lot of mixed tones, um, mostly due to studio stuff, I'm presuming. Um, but this is not always the easiest film to watch. Uh, but Lee Grant, I think, manages to find moments of humor that really work. It's not like a out-of-left-field sort of thing where um, she throws like a wrench in the machinery and it's just, you know, humor for humor's sake. I feel like she finds a way to kind of match the tone in her own little um, offhand kind of way. And I really dig it. Um, yeah, I really like this Lee Grant nomination. How about you? Um, so this was my first watch of Detective Story, and I remember uh, texting you later that day being like, I have thoughts and we need to discuss. And I was like, but no, it's one of those moments you want to wait for um, the, the the episode. Um, Lee Grant, I don't know what the fuck she's doing in this movie. I I don't understand this nomination. I am so flabbergasted at what was seen here to be given a nomination. She doesn't really have anything to do. There's not even like a moment for her to be like, to have that Oscar moment, like that moment that I've talked about for years now on the show with like, I'm not an Oscar moment type of person unless you only have a moment, like Ned Beatty, for an example. Um, there is just nothing for her to do here. She she has a few comments to like other people about to get booked, like it doesn't hurt, or I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have grabbed the, the purse, but that's it. Like I I, when that movie ended, I shut down the Canopy app and I was like, what the fuck did Lee Grant do? I don't get it. Um, I Now that we've covered her four nominations, I have to say this is probably her weakest of the nominations. And that's even beating something like Voyage of the Damned. At least in Voyage of the Damned, she's got like the, the scene with the scissors. But I would say probably The Landlord is her best nomination now going over her four. Um, I'm glad you love it though, but I, I'm sorry to break your heart there on, uh, <laughs> on your guess for me. Well, that's okay. Uh, the landlord is probably also my favorite of hers. Uh, I think that might be her most, I, I don't know why, I don't know if complex is the right word for it, but I find that character be, to be the most multifaceted, I suppose, of her four nominations. Um, but with the, with shoplifter character, I would agree that she doesn't necessarily have that capital M moment, but she's a presence throughout the film who I think brings a certain levity when the film needs it, because, you know, this is kind of a dark movie. And it's my understanding that the play was even darker. And she, you know, played this part, I believe, on the stage before they brought it to Hollywood. So it's, you know, a role that she knows pretty well. And I think that shows quite a bit on screen. And I think it's especially helpful considering, you know, the, uh, the producers and the studio were trying to sort of shoehorn in this like sympathetic storyline for a couple of these cop characters who are not really supposed to like. Uh, like the the play, I've never seen it or read it, but I've, you know, I've read about it having watched the film. I was looking it up a little bit because there seems to be a dissonance on screen between the page and what we see on screen. And um, it's much more critical of the police uh, outright, because you know we're not really supposed to revere these guys. Like they're doing awful, horrible things, basically torturing 
their suspects, uh, harassing their witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. And then there in the end, the movie kind of wants us to find some sort of grain of sympathy. And it seems very like shoehorned in, in a way that doesn't really feel right. And that's, I'm guessing, a studio thing. Uh, but Lee Grant, I think, finds a way to make everything not feel quite so bleak without downplaying the things that the that the story is supposed to be criticizing. Um, so it's not, you know, your Oscar scene type of role, but it's a presence that I think is entirely necessary. And I think she she does nail it for me. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's looking at her other nominations, which seem to be pretty loud nominations. I, I was like, ooh, what, what was the first thing that got um, the attention of Academy voters with this. I just, I wish I saw what you saw because I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, good for Lee Grant. She's got four. She's got four more than I do. So, you know, kudos. Go Lee. Go Lee. Um, <laughs> oh, I get it. Go Lee. All right. So moving on, we have this year's winner, Kim Hunter as Stella. I'm actually surprised not one of us did that for an opening. Um, although the Blue Veil opening, when I heard the Hey Daddy song, I'm like, there it is. Um, Kim Hunter as Stella in A Streetcar Named Desire. This is her sole nomination. Of course, she wins. Um, going into Oscar night, she has a Golden Globe win for Supporting Actress. In A Streetcar, uh, again, her name, uh, Kim Hunter plays Stella, who is the sister to Vivian Lee. Um, they... The the, mood, the film and story takes place at, like, their apartment. It's, like, this duplex. Everyone's getting drunk. Everyone's fighting. Stella's in the middle of it with her man, Carl Malden, and then her sister, Vivian Lee. And shit goes down. It's the classic tale of, you know, one too many. Uh, Brandon, thoughts? So I don't know if it's just me or the people who I have in, like, my circle but i feel as though when it comes to the four actors nominated for this film kim hunter seems to be brought up the least for some reason maybe it's because outside of this film she's not quite as recognizable as the other three uh you know marlon brando had a whole career uh so did vivian lee and carl malden has other nominations and appears in other you know big classic films from the era but kim hunter i'm aware she's done other stuff but it seems like this seems to be like the thing like Kim Hunter is synonymous with streetcar. And um, I think in a way that makes sense. Uh, I think she works pretty well in this movie. She seems to be a character who's sort of caught in the middle uh, by design. And she stands her ground, I guess you could say, relatively well when it comes to, you know, acting across, you know, this juggernaut from hell in Marlon Brando's Stanley Kowalski. Um, You know, he's extra as fuck. And she never really blends into the background for me. She's always standing out in some way. No matter what he's doing, she seems to be matching him in a way that's believable without attempting to, say, pull the spotlight uh, from him. So I really dig it. There's a sort of naturalism to her performance. This is a really interesting movie to watch in this uh, point in acting history. I actually just bought the book, um, The Method, about the evolution of acting and the uh, creation of, you know, the whole 
actors studio uh, stuff. And I'm really interested to tear into that and see what what's going on here in the in 1951. But um, I I don't know. I really dig Kim Hunter here. She seems to be balancing things pretty well from an acting standpoint. How do you feel about her? Um, so Kim Hunter is not my least favorite thing of a streetcar named Desire. There, she's got that going for her. Um, I am very intrigued with what she's got going on here. Um, I never watching this, so I've never seen another production of this. Obviously, like I said, I was very new to this film, to this story within the last two years. Um, so I, I, I've never seen anyone else do it. Now, watching Kim in this role, it always feels like she wants to go over the edge, but she never allows herself to. But she doesn't allow herself to blend in the background either. She makes Stella her own person, her own character. She lets Stella stand on her two feet. Um, you know, she she stands up where she needs to stand up. She's not taking shit. But then she also allows herself to fall and take shit. So it's it's an interesting balance on in what she's doing here. Um but yeah, you know, this is the Lee Strasberg school of acting um, tenfold. I mean, the, everyone from the play outside of Jessica Tandy, you know, came in for the movie. So this character, like Lee Grant in Detective Story, had been played by the same woman on the stage. I personally love that. I like when actors have the chance to... Um, go to different mediums to play the role you know as we know like the stage is very much the actor's medium while film while acting is really the editor's medium so um you know a lot of the time when, you, when we talk best actor and that's why i love someone like lupita nyong'o's win for 12 years a slave was you know she had mentioned the um uh john bobbitt in the in the editing room and it's you know fascinating that she you know again got to come from stage to screen so I, I would be very intrigued to see what someone else does with this role I mean I'm very intrigued to see what someone does anyone does with all the roles here um especially since my streetcar experience wasn't as I, I, I guess I want to use the word glamorous as everyone else um but yeah I don't hate what she's doing I'm just I, it's one of those roles now where I want to see what else someone can bring to it, you know? I um, It's been a long time since I've seen it, but there was a, ver a TV movie in the 90s um, with Diane Lane as Stella, and Jessica Lange plays Blanche. I feel like that might be more your speed, I wonder, having those two ladies in these roles. I have heard Jessica Lange has played Blanche. Yeah. But I do, um, I do find Stella to be an interesting character, because she's sort of that that lady who we find ourselves yelling at a lot because she's in a really awful situation and yet she never really leaves except she does but then she comes back and she's always sort of in this trapped area where there's it's almost like a cycle of masochism going on but at the same time it's kind of hard to judge because what exactly would she do you know if she left uh, especially after having the baby. So she kind of has a, a contradiction of emotions going on, which is a very human thing, uh, I think, to experience in this situation. Um, so I, And I also really admire Kim Hunter's performance here because, like I think we were both saying a little bit, 
she never really tries to um, do anything unnatural to like really steal the spotlight from her co-stars. I feel like everything she does makes sense and it doesn't seem like she's acting, you know, she's just being the part. Yeah. I mean, I, I could definitely see that there, that is a great point where, you know, you saying she is the part um, because there are, there is some acting with a capital A in this movie and then there is not. <laughs> so yeah, I would put her in the not category. It does feel very lived in. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Joan Blondell as Annie Rollins in The Blue Veil, which is a movie that does not exist, by the way. No, it does not. It does not exist. I'm interested to know if we watch the same copy. Um, so anyway, this is her sole nomination um, and her only time at the Academy. Um, and in The Blue Veil, Joan Blondell plays Annie Rollins, who's an actress who hires the Jane Wyman character to look after her young daughter, played by a very young Natalie Wood, um, as she tries to get work, uh, new work as an actress, and realizes that her family is probably suffering from the line of work she's doing. Uh, so, Brandon, let's talk Joan Blondell in The Blue Veil in a movie that does not exist. Right. Uh, so we're, we're just making up this movie. There is no Absolutely. historical evidence for this film ever having existed. Um, I really like Joan in this. Uh, this is a movie that I was not quite feeling for like the first half of the movie. And then Joan comes in about halfway through, uh, cause you know, basically Jane Wyman's character who we'll get to in a little bit is a sort of live in nurse nanny who goes basically from family to family. And I think Joan is like the third family that she's a part of, um, at this point in her career. Um, and Joan is very, uh, she's basically a showgirl, uh, like a nightclub sort of chanteuse type thing. And it's kind of, um, it's not necessarily risque, but she brings a certain zesty uh, spiciness to this film that I think it, it really needed. Um, I believe the film, I think our introduction to her is during one of her numbers, if I'm not mistaken. Or Correct. it's one of the very first things that we see of her, and um, I didn't really—I don't really know Joan's career. I had to like look up the name of her character and a picture of her to, that way I would recognize her because she's not one of those actors who I trusted myself to immediately recognize. And the moment she came on screen, it's like the movie had hit reset, and suddenly it found a new light. And I think she's wonderful here. She brings the energy, and there's also a certain level of sadness to this character because um, she's sort of aging out of her profession a little bit, getting a little uh, looked over for younger, skinnier broads. And, you know, she's a mother of what Natalie Wood, and this is like, what, 10-ish, 10 or 12? Um, so... Uh, the gentlemen aren't quite coming around like they used to. And there, there's a certain level of sadness that I really dug that she tries to mask with this facade of sexiness. And uh, I really dig it. How do you feel about her? Um, so Joan Blondell has a very small role in this. No, I don't want to say epic because it's not an epic in the vein of something like Lawrence of Arabia or Reds. What I want to mean by epic is that the amount of characters in this movie, 
there's a lot going on because there's a lot of characters. So I was interested because I don't think she shows up until a little over maybe an hour into the film. And the, the film's about an hour 50 long. Yeah, it's like the halfway point. Just yeah. About. Yeah. And I'm like, OK, what can she do? And then shout out to Scream Time Central. Um, Joan's got the least amount of screen time for the supporting actor sign up at 11 minutes. 11 minutes and 50 seconds, which a solid like three, four minutes of this feels like it's the performance that we meet her in. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm exaggerating that, but it feels like a long introduction for her. I'm not complaining though, because holy hell does Joan Blondell, when you <laughs> when you leave watching this fake movie, um, which by the way, the copy that I had to find in the seven seas as a pirate had, had, was like a today or a late show copy. Yep, that's the same one I found. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Someone recorded it from TV and cut out the commercials. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah, you, like, I remembered her. I was like, wow, she was a fire, she's a real firecracker, as Jared Leto said in House of Gucci. Um, she, no, she's great. I mean, she is not letting you forget that she's here. Um, from her singing to her dancing to her reacting I mean, there is not a dull moment with Joan Blondell on screen, and I'm here for it. Um, This is one of those nominations that, despite having limited screen time, she earns this nomination. There is so much for her to do. She could have been just another one of these characters, and yet she owns every moment. I was like, yes, bitch, living. Um, And obviously... Uh, you had introduced me, I think maybe what, two years ago, three years ago to opening night, a yeah. Cassavetti's picture, which Joan, um, was probably very close to getting a supporting actress nomination with because she had a Golden Globe nomination for that. So, you know, I knew her work from that. I knew her work, work briefly in Greece. Um, and then this was the third movie I ever saw her in. So kudos to Joan. Yeah, she's quite good in this, because um, this movie takes place over the course of, like, 20-something years in the life of uh, Jane Wyman's character. And, you know, uh, Joan and Natalie would take up a very small portion of it there in, like, the third quarter of the movie before it goes in yet another direction. But that's probably the best quarter of this movie, uh, and that has a lot to do with Joan and what she's doing Um I kind of wish that that had been the entire film, <laughs> that Jane Wyman had just been with them for the entire movie, because after that happened, I frankly didn't care about all the other families and children that she was taking care of, because mm-hmm. uh, that's how good Joan is. Yeah, if if there was like a spinoff or a sequel to this, I would want it revolved around her character. Mm-hmm. She was delightful. I was very surprised at this sole nomination of a quote-unquote forgotten by mainstream but remembered by cinephile supporting actress of this era like good for you joan blondell now if only they could restore this movie somehow maybe more people could see it um because again it doesn't exist right all right we've got mildred dunnock uh we are coming back to mildred well actually you didn't get to talk about baby doll um, but this is my second time talking about Mildred Dunnick on here as Linda Lohman in Death of a Salesman. This is our first of two nominations um, in Death of a Salesman. Oh, I want to say she has nothing going into Oscar night, but I do want to bring up in the 80s, she revisits this role on TV and the Emmys nominate her for lead actress. Hmm. 
So in Death of a Salesman, oh, and this was also something she played on stage. So there's a theme here with this with this category. In Death of a Salesman, uh, Mildred again plays Linda, who is the wife to the Frederick March character. And she is a part of this family dynamic of her husband pretty much going insane while her boys aren't helping out at all until it's too late. And you know what? Even though it's called Death of a Salesman, for some reason that death so surprised me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, wait, duh. Um, but yeah, uh, Brandon, what do you think of Mildred Dunnick here? I actually really like this performance. I had never seen this version of Death of a Salesman before. And her role in this uh, is pretty complex here because she has to function on a few different levels. Um, it kind of reminded me of when we talked about Olivia Coleman and The Father and how how much that movie works because of Olivia Coleman's sneaky performance and the way she's able to play the real version of her character and a sort of fantastical, hallucinatory version of her character, and then somewhere in between, depending on the state of mind of the lead actor. Um, it's very similar to that, because uh, Willie Loman is basically losing his mind, because the American dream is a fickle bitch that is having its way with him. And he's basically given his entire life to this system that uh, is discarding him and he's losing it. So whether or not we're seeing the quote unquote real Linda from scene to scene is sometimes difficult to discern. And I think sometimes you have, you just kind of project whatever you want onto her and, and it kind of works at times um, because she is at times the sort of prototypical American housewife. Um, like the, the image of the housewife is sort of Stepford wife adjacent sort of thing, because in his mind, that's, if not what she is, what she quote unquote ought to be. And then there's times where, you know, she shows some doubt as to his well-being and how they're going to be as a functioning family, given their financial situation and how he's doing mentally. So it's it's a very fascinating performance that I'm excited to revisit someday and watch again, knowing what I know now, because I hadn't really read or seen anything of Death of a Salesman basically since like high school, because we read it in like one of my senior English classes. And then we watched the, the Dustin Hoffman version. That was my only real um, experience with this story. So um, how did you feel about it? So I knew the title of Death of a Salesman, but I never had been introduced to this. I never had to read it in high school. I never had seen the play. I This was my first touch of Death of a Salesman. And again, even though everything was with everything happening, I don't know why the death of the salesman really shocked me. Like I was like, oh, wait, what? Um, titular but, death. Right. Now, before I continue, I can't remember if you said you had seen Baby Doll or not. I've seen Baby Doll. Um, I think Mildred's fine in it. I prefer her here. But uh, Carol Baker is my winner and lead actress for that lineup. Yeah. And that was the thing with Mildred Dunnock's, um My introduction to her was it through Baby Doll. And I was like, wait, what's going on here? And then it's like that last scene at the dinner table she has that's like, oh, wait, yeah, like, 
okay, there it is. So I was kind of worried going into Death of a Salesman. I'm like, is she just going to have another baby doll style role? And that doesn't happen here, which was really refreshing because I actually got to see more of Mildred Dunnick and Mildred Dunnick, the actress. And I was like, why wasn't she known more? Like what, you know what I mean? Like it was, it's again, one of those things like cinephiles remember her, but if you say Mildred Dunnick to someone walking down the street, they're going to be like, who, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She's a great actress and this proved it. I mean, she was really damn good. Um, This is such an interesting piece of material that also makes me crave the I want to see someone else to do it like I want to see what other people can bring to this I also love that she was attached to this role pretty much her whole career from stage to screen to tv I mean she did every medium of this I'm pretty sure if there was an audiobook she'd be fucking playing Linda there it's you could have her- got it off of just this one property <laughs> seriously <laughs> oh i wonder if that's if that is possible at all to ever egot off of one property um that'd be interesting to find out um challenge accepted but anyway uh yeah i i think this is a great nomination i think i i see she's got a lot to do um there's so much dynamic and three dimensions of this character i mean she's celebrating with her kids she's showing up in her husband's uh, visions. Uh, she's defending her husband. She's mourning for him. She's, you know, they're celebrating paying off the house and joking with about the refrigerator. I mean, there's so much material for her. And it's like, good for you, Mildred Dunnick. Um, this was a great first nomination. Kudos to Mildred Dunnick. Rest in peace, girl. Yeah, I really dig it. I I didn't know what to expect because I had seen Baby Doll first and I thought she, I thought she was good in Baby Doll, but I wasn't exactly thrilled with that particular nomination. Um, but I really liked her quite a bit in Death of a Salesman. Yeah, yeah. I like this one a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else on Mildred Dunnock? Well, I um, not, I guess not so much on the performance, but you had mentioned her her Emmy. I, mm-hmm. I had looked up her, uh, I guess, relationship with this property um, afterward, and I... I've not seen that television version, but it's my understanding based on what I've read about it that it was an abridged version. So I wonder if maybe that's what bumped her up to lead. Maybe this all the Linda scenes survived and some of the other ones got cut or compressed. I'm not sure. But I wonder if that's the reason. Because I know when Linda Emond did this role on Broadway, when Mike Nichols directed it, she was nominated for a Tony and featured. So I think it is typically a featured slash supporting type of role, but maybe the nature of the abridgment is what made her qualify as lead for the Emmys. I'm not sure. I mean, here's the thing about this role in particular, because there were moments in this movie where I'm like, wait a minute, why is she in supporting? Mm -hmm. And then there's parts of the movie where she's gone for a good chunk, but she's right back in making up that time. And I was like, wait a minute, what do I do here? And then, like, as the movie finishes, I realized, like, this is a perfect example of an ensemble piece. This is an entire family with a – you got very silent when I said that – with characters who have their own stories happening at the same time. So I think the Oscars have her in the right category. Yes, I will say she is in the right category. 
Okay. <laughs> there you go. I like how silent you got. I just, I, I know you enough now to where I'm just like, just don't wait for a response. Just keep going. Well, I would not call this an ensemble piece because Willie Loman is very much the lead of this story, but everyone else around him is supporting. He has a supporting cast of characters. I love that idea. <laughs> I do. No, it's it's all good. Um, anything else before we move on to Thelma Ritter? No, I'm all right. All right. Well, let's talk Miss Thelma Ritter in her second of six nominations. Uh, as Ellen McNulty, this is for the film The Mating Season, and going into Oscar night, she has a Golden Globe nomination for supporting. In The Mating Season, again, Thelma plays Ellen McNulty, who is a woman who is fucking feisty as shit. This is who I want to be when I grow up, <laughs> is, first of all, Thelma Ritter, but Ellen McNulty. Also, her character from um, Pillow Talk. Put those two together, mm -hmm. that's me. Anyway... Um, this character of Ellen owns a, a hamburger shop that's going under. She goes to see her son in Akron, Ohio. A lot of Cleveland references here, including an airport that never looked like that. Um, oh. Nope. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, that is not Hopkins, but cool. Um, but uh, yeah, she, she's a woman who goes to visit her son and kind of gets trapped in this like uh, <laughs> this this like housekeeper role and keeps it hidden from her daughter-in-law and then she's got to help them get back together because they get into a fight and there's a mother-in-law from hell and there's a lot going on in this movie uh let's talk about it i quite like thelma ritter in this um this movie is basically just like a feature-length sitcom episode because there's this uh whole deception storyline going on here where she's you know pretending to not be the mother of um, Gene Tierney's, are, are they married? Is it husband or are they just engaged at that point? I don't recall. I think they had just gotten married, yeah. And, you know, she pretends to be, you know, an assistant uh, cook and the whole shtick is her trying to not be found out for whatever reason. That's kind of silly, but you just kind of go with it. But I think, uh, I think Thelma Ritter really makes it work. Um, she's very adept at this sort of situation comedy performance while also staying true to who this character is because sort of like Joan Bladell there is a certain um, pathos to this character because uh, she's she's going through quite a bit she's basically losing her business back in um, I think New York that they've had for a long time that she basically used to help her son get through college and start his life at the expense of her own finances and the businesses and now they're basically losing their family business and uh i don't think that's lost on her and you never really exactly forget about it it's always kind of there in the back of her mind while she's just um trying to help her son and new daughter-in-law out without I guess embarrassing him uh, by revealing who she is. Uh, it's it's kind of silly, but it speaks to the character that she would rather go through all this uh, this complicated farce just to make someone else feel better. So I, I really dig it. I think Thelma Ritter is obviously a gifted talent, and I think this is a a really nice performance. 
So this is coming off of her All About Eve role, which, you know, I gave her the Oscar win for. I've given her a win for uh, Pillow Talk as well. We've talked about Birdman of Alcatraz. And I was like, oh, the mating season, it's her final one. And I'm like, nope, I realized I did not, haven't seen Pick Up on South Street yet, nor with a song in my heart. So, you know, Thelma has a pretty good track record for me thus far. And this ends up in the good part of her track record for me. You know, this is a very well acted role. And, you know, it's, it is bringing Thelma Ritter to life in, or this character to life in the only way Thelma Ritter can. There's funny moments, there's actual good sentimental moments. She never, um, she draws the audience in exactly where you need that, where you need to be. And she gives us a little something, something, and then, you know, hooks us on with some bait of um, comedy and then, you know, drops it down for us to, eat more and you know there's so much she's doing here but that's something that i have found in doing this podcast watching her performances that she just does the best um so you know what this is another good great acting role for her um and you know it's so odd to me i know i know these there are people like thamavretta who is literally always the bridesmaid but like revisiting these i'm i am just like what else did she have to do you know what i mean she's fantastic outside of birdman for me but um she's fantastic in what i've seen her so far in yeah i have not seen pick up on south street or with a song in my heart either those are also the two thelma blind spots for me but i know quite a few people who say that she is phenomenal in pick up on south street so i'm excited to see that one and uh sam fuller directed it and i i don't think i've ever been disappointed with a sam fuller movie so now i have two reasons to watch it yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when we concluded our previous episode, our guest, Christoph, had mentioned that this is one of his uh, category frauds for this year. How are you feeling about that? I feel like if I talk about that right now, it would give it away. Because like Thelma Ritter, I think for me, I want to maybe let this simmer for a minute and have people wonder where I'm going to go. Okay. How about you? How's that sound? That's fine. We can save it to the end. So before we move on to leads, uh, we have a little message from former guest uh, Cody Derricks. He had some parting words for us. So we're going to play that now. Hey, Queens. This is Cody Derricks. Uh, happy finale i guess that's how you would say this um i'm glad it's you know what what a nice thing for a podcast to be able to end on its own terms that's always lovely um thank you for having me on in 1999 to defend miss uh, tony collette and miss hillary swank from their uh should have been and was oscar winning performances um just wanted to you know send a quick little appreciative memo um something i loved about academy queens is that uh you know you two had such different uh personalities of recording you know brandon famously very tempestuous not afraid to be controversial with his opinions and joey very even keeled very like you know close to the mic I'm just kidding. It's, see, the joke there is that it's the opposite is true. But love both of you. Thank you for providing a space for us to discuss some wonderful ladies across the decades. Bye. All right. What a lovely message from Ms. Derricks. Aw, thanks, Cody. 1999 was a fun year. Yes. Team that was, Tony. 
Cody was also a learning year for us because that was the first time we did guess where we did the full ranking of the decade. And we're like, that was a lot. <laughs> Never again. Never. And if you notice, yeah, if anyone had noticed, Cody's been the only time we did a decade ranking with a guest because it is a lot to go through. Yeah. But it's still so, a fun episode. Very much so. All right. And the nominees for Best Actress in a Leading Role in 1951 were... Those nominated for the Best Performance by an Actress are Catherine Hepburn and the African Queen, Horizon Enterprises Incorporated, United Artists... Vivian Lee in A Streetcar Named Desire, Charles K. Fellman Group Productions, Warner Brothers. Eleanor Parker in Detective Story, Paramount. Shelley Winters in A Place in the Sun, Paramount. And Jane Wyman in The Blue Veil, Walt Krasner, Productions Incorporated, RKO Radio. Let's get the big one out of the way here. So drink some water, take some deep breaths. Mm -hmm. We're probably going to be going for about three hours on this one alone we have vivian lee for a streetcar named desire this is her second win and second nomination here at the oscars uh going into this she wins uh bafta for british actress and she has a win with the new york film critics and she's nominated with the globes in a streetcar named desire vivian lee plays blanche dubois a disturbed and uh recently made destitute woman who goes to New Orleans to live with her sister and brother-in-law as she's kind of losing her mind a little bit. So go ahead, Joey. I, I guys, I don't get it. I don't get what magic comes over people sometimes with like, and this is not a dig at you, Brandon, because I know he's your winner, but like Joel Grand Cabaret or, Ben Johnson in the last picture show or Vivian Lee in a streetcar named desire or Vivian Lee again and gone with the wind. This woman cannot act to save her fucking life. And I don't understand what people see in her. When we talk, what was she in that stone of Mrs. Roman or whatever, the Roman stone of whatever with uh, Una Merkel, not Una Merkel. Lottie. Um, Lottie Lenya. Yeah. Yeah, when we talked about her nomination for um, uh, the Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, and I'm like, this is the th third movie I've seen Vivian Lee in now, and I cannot stand her. She is a terrible actress. And you had mentioned, you're like, maybe you're just not a fan of what she's doing. And I think, I'm like, yeah, I think that's it. She's just one of those actors that does not click with me. This woman acts with a capital A. If you want shrieking, she will... <gasps> And shriek. You want scared? She's going to give you those big eyes and go, <gasps> and give you the big eyes. You know what I mean? Like, it's so animated in the worst possible way. This woman sucked. Period. End of story. I don't get it. This is not good. I remember when I had seen this originally in my tweet, literally literally ranking all the characters of a street art card named desire and from the acting from worst to best. <clears throat> and here it is the best to worst Carl Malden, Marlon Brando, Kim Hunter, the Mexican bell lady, the upstairs neighbor lady, the broken bottle of booze, the railing for the stairs, the streetcar named desire, the baby bassinet and Vivian Lee. What, is, what, about, what about the shower? I feel like the shower gives a good performance. 
Brandon, I don't get it. I don't get it. Do you like it? Yes. <laughs> okay, your turn. So, so all the things you describe about why it doesn't work for you, I think make perfect sense for this character. I've only seen a handful of Vivian Lee movies. Uh, she only made like 15 movies in her career for you know, personal reasons. So I've only seen a couple. But I think all those things work in this character. Because uh, Blanche Dubois is putting on fronts. And she's kind of acting as a person, um, pretending or purporting to be this sort of put-together Southern Belle, uh, this former beauty queen who's who still wants to be beautiful but also has this deep insecurity. The way she speaks is very put on. Um, there's a lot of masking going on with this character while she's slowly cracking and crumbling um, on the inside. And I think it really, I think the casting of Vivian Lee really works for that. Because um, I think she is just, I think her performance style just doesn't quite work for you. And I know she's a very polarizing actress. Like you're not the only person I know who cannot stand her. There's several people who cannot, and there's seems to be for every one of those people, there's someone who loves her. Um, so I find that very fascinating. And I, I think what she brings to this is cool, because like I had mentioned earlier with the uh, sort of historical um, point in acting, I guess, that we were at in 1951, uh, she's a very interesting figure to have in this role as Blanche Dubois uh, alongside these sort of uh, Lee Strasberg actors, like you had mentioned earlier. Because Vivian Lee was was not really a trained method actor. She comes from more of the classical side of things over in Britain. But her life was kind of so fucked up that I think it was impossible for her to not inadvertently use some of the techniques that Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and those folks would go on to refine. Because uh, once again, to shout out Izzy from Be Kind Rewind, she has a video of Vivian, about Vivian Lee that's very enlightening. And um, it, she had a really difficult life. And uh, I, I think she was channeling some things when she played Blanche Dubois that she may not have always been conscious of that she was channeling. Because again, she wasn't a trained method actor who w would do that on purpose. I think it was just happening. And so what we're seeing on screen is someone who's very torn in a lot of ways. The sort of classical side of her training is this front that Blanche is putting on, whereas this sort of accidental method that's happening is the interior of Blanche. I find it to be a very cool performance to watch, all things considered. But I can, I can see why a lot of people just don't care for it. And... Uh, Honestly, I think that makes it even cooler. Hey, more power to her. And listen, I, I know I'm on the minority side. It's okay. You know, I feel like if we had done this episode three years ago, ranting Joey would have gone on for those three hours. I, you know it's true. I know it's true. But it is like one of those things that I just have to like sit back and just go, 
Sure. <laughs> you know, it's it is what it is. I feel like we've become more concise in our later episodes than we were in the past, which is which is fine. Yeah, it's so funny. I just I just guessed it on a show um I recorded the other day and the person was like yeah, I remember I went back and listened to your 1970 episode. I'm like, ooh. Because, <laughs> like, you know, you always do that with a pilot episode in general. Yeah. But I was like, it's so funny, like, thinking about that episode. Because when we, like, recorded that, we, we kind of recorded it on a whim. Like, we went to just go check out the studio. And I'm like, why don't we just do it now? And yeah. so it's, and welcome to Academy Queens. I'm joined Tilly Braden. What do you think about this? So literally, like, three episodes later, I'm like, fuck this. Fuck her. Fuck this. And now I'm just like, you know what? It is what it is. Yeah, I had forgotten. We didn't really plan on recording that day. We just went to Jim's house, our friend Jim, who has a little recording studio, and we were just checking it out. We were going to do some tests, and then we were like, let's just do something. And we basically just did an episode on the fly. I had forgotten about that. But yeah, mm. back in the 70s and even the 80s, I think we were a little bit more ranty. But um, that's fine. Yeah, it's good times. Yeah. Well, next we have Katherine Hepburn, nominated for The African Queen. This is her fifth of 12 nominations. She doesn't have any major wins for this, but she is nominated with the New York Film Critics. In The African Queen, Katherine Hepburn plays Rose Sayer, a buttoned-up missionary who teams up with an alcoholic riverboat captain to escape German East Africa. So how do you feel about Katherine in The African Queen? What if I also said this was my first time with the African Queen? That's fine. I feel like the African Queen is the most seen in this category. Um, I feel it's one of those like cinephiles versus like regular movie folks thing where you you know you would say like a streetcar named Desire, but but I feel like a streetcar named Desire is such like a theater thing now that like I like I know people who have seen only the African Queen in this lineup who are just like everyday moviegoers. So it was interesting that I that, that for me this was my first time with this. Um, the story is a lot. <laughs> the story is just. A lot. And like, I remember like going into this thing and like, oh, this, the African queen, it's this giant boat, right? It's about, it's this boat story. Bitch, this is a paddle boat. Like, what the fuck? What, what, I, what, this? Okay. And then like, obviously the stories behind the scenes and whatnot, but you know what I've come to conclude with? John Houston directed films are just not my cup of tea at all. From Pritzi's Honor to The Dead. Uh, to this, to the Asphalt Jungle. I think maybe the only one I actually would like consider watching again would be The Misfits. Shout out to Luke. Um, but yeah, uh, don't love this movie. Um, with that said, the performance that Katherine Hepburn gives here is weirdly delightful, yet head scratching at the same time. And I think it's like not in a bad head scratching way, just like a like uh what the hell is <laughs> what's gonna happen next um so yeah it's uh this was a performance that i was like oh okay okay all right and then as these two find love it's beautiful like it's it's an emotional journey of of uh-huh uh uh Oh, that's adorable. So, you know what? Go Katherine Hepburn. I actually am surprised at how much I like this performance. 
For some reason, the African Queen is one that's never really quite worked for me. I had seen it a long time ago, you know, when I was going through the AFI movies, because this is on at least at least one movie. I think it's maybe their romance or their adventure list. I'm not sure. And so that's how I had first come to watching it. Um, and I think I'd seen it another time before the rewatch for this. So I've seen it two or three times. And for some reason, this movie never quite clicks for me. And I'm not sure why that is. I think Catherine Hepburn's good. And I think Humphrey Bogart's good. But um, I always feel like there's something missing. Um, Hepburn is, you know, this is almost halfway through her Oscar resume. And um, she seems to be at a bit of a transition point where she's not doing the stuff she was doing in the 40s anymore. And she is not quite as dark as she would go on to be, you know, in the 60s. Um, or sad, if you're talking about Summertime, which is a beautiful Katherine Hepburn performance, if you haven't checked it out. Um, so I feel like she's she's figuring things out a little bit. I, I've seen some people say that Hepburn was sort of miscast here, and I wouldn't say miscast. Maybe she was cast against type a little bit, considering what she had been doing prior. But um, I wouldn't say she's out of place. Uh, but there, there does seem to be a little spark that's just missing for me, and I can't quite place it anytime I've seen it. So I don't know. Maybe I'll figure it out in the course of this recording. But I don't know. There's something not fully there for me on this one. Yeah, I get what you mean too. There's definitely like you remember that period of time in like between the 80s and the 90s with Meryl Streep, where it was like, like she always considers her 70s and 80s resume as her East Coast resume and her 90s resume as like the West Coast when she lived in LA, there's a clear difference in the material and the way she's acting, just like Meryl in that period of time. Cause she's definitely not in the I mean, obviously there's still a the the studio system happening here, but there's not that golden age of Hollywood feel of her performances after the 1940s. And so I get what you mean there. I feel like this is definitely that transitional performance and role for her. Yeah, but it, it does also give her quite a bit to work with because, you know, she's her scene partner is this cantankerous Humphrey Bogart who's always drunk. And I think her scene of her pouring out his alcohol one bottle at a time right into the river is pretty comical while he's just kind of laying there pathetic on the on the floor of the boat. And, you know, she gets her sort of uh, Shelley Winters in the Poseidon Adventure swimming sequence when she has to swim under the boat to repair it. So she gets some moments to stand out. Um, but yeah, there's just, I just, I'm always left wanting a little bit more anytime I finish this film. Also, fair. Uh, next, we have Eleanor Parker, nominated for Detective Story. This is her second of three nominations, uh, fresh off her nomination for Caged. She doesn't really have anything going into this at all. And uh, in Detective Story, Eleanor plays Mary McLeod, the wife of Kirk Douglas's detective James McLeod, from whom she may be harboring a deep, dark secret. So how do you feel about Eleanor and Detective Story? I like her here. You know, she is my winner for 1950, which is the year before this. And it is, um, you know, it is definitely a good performance. And there is a lot happening to her character here. 
and it is very much in step with the type of acting she needs to pull off. Um, I really wish there was more of her because there is so much she could have done with this. You know, she shows up for that brief scene in the beginning in the, I believe it's the taxi cab, and then isn't around really until the last half of the movie, um, which is interesting. But yeah, I really like her here. This is a performance that, like her role, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Unlike her role in Caged, where she didn't actually sell me until she was able to flip the script and essentially give me two performances in one, she is just giving it to me in full the entire time. And it's, again, one of those, like, always a bridesmaid moments with Eleanor Parker. Um, deserved better, and this is a fantastic performance. Uh, what about you? I really like her performance here. I wish there was so much more of it. I wonder how much of how much may have been cut from the stage show, um, given the nature of it. Because you know this this is a character whose storyline deals with abortion, which was kind of you know a, a big no no in film at this time. So I wonder how much more there may have been on the page or on the stage. Um, but I think she gives a very um, believable performance here. There's a naturalism to her that I really dig. Um, I wonder how this story would have fared had it been made like 25 years later. I feel like this is a script, um, maybe not the script they ended up using for the movie, but the stage script may have worked a lot better in, say, the 1970s given her very tender, uh, I guess, controversial for the time storyline, um, I wonder how it would have fared in a later year. But uh, I think she does a, a really good job with what little material she has here. Yeah, and that's the thing, what little material she has here. What the mm. fuck is she doing in this category? Yeah, um, I mean, maybe studios were still politicking in the way that they used to. Maybe Eleanor Parker was just a little bit too established to go into supporting because that was, I guess, sort of the mindset back in the day. So I'm not sure how much of that played into it. But um, yeah, if you're looking at what she, uh, her screen time and what kind of lack of POV she has here and all things considered, it's a, a very questionable category placement. Yeah, I get it. Next we have Ms. Shelley Winters, nominated for A Place in the Sun. This is her first of four nominations. She doesn't win anything major going in, but she is recognized with the Globes and the New York Film Critics. In A Place in the Sun, Shelley plays Alice Tripp, an assembly line worker who becomes romantically entangled with Monty Cliff's George Eastman until he kind of just decides to get rid of her, dot, dot, dot. So how do you feel about Shelley Winters in A Place in the Sun? Shelley Winters is great in A Place in the Sun. It's probably my favorite of Shelley Winters' nominations. Um, you know, I wasn't a big fan of her win for uh, uh, the, and the Diary of Anne Frank. I gave her the win for Patch of Blue. And, you know, then she's there for the Poseidon Adventure, having a stroke from, you know, saving everyone in the in the water. Go Shell. Um, but I, I genuinely enjoy this film and this performance. It's a tragic performance. It's a tragic character. 
Um, Monty Clift is an asshole <laughs> in this movie. Shelley Winters deserves better. And it is, it, it's, it's one of those characters where she pulls on your heartstrings to where like when her demise comes, you just want to save her. And I think she did a fantastic job. This is a great performance from Shelly. There, there, it's just one of those performances where I'm like, I want more from her on this. You know, I, I read um, Shelly's first uh, book that she wrote uh, during the beginning of quarantine. And, you know, she talks about going to the Oscars the year for this and, you know, her excitement and, and everything. And, you know, it's just... God damn it, she was such a good actress. I really like her in this film. Um, I'm not sure how... It's between this and A Patch of Blue. I'm not sure which one is my favorite performance, but I think she is wonderful in this movie. Um, I think it's clear from the get-go that this is a serious and very fierce actress, a star on the rise, it's very much that type of performance. And she basically gives you everything. And I don't know about you, but I was pretty much on her side the entire time. Because uh, Monty treats her very poorly. Um, kind of just gets romantically involved with her just because he's kind of bored, I guess. And she just happens to be there and he knocks her up and kind of tries to ditch her. And she tries to get an abortion or she inquires about it and it's not exactly an option for her and she tries to get with him and then he's like nah i'm gonna go be with elizabeth taylor and she gets real sad and gets vindictive and her that final scene on the boat which has been you know ripped off and paid homage to time and time again i mean everyone has seen some version of that scene play out whether it was done for comedy or just you know a straight dramatic ripoff but she is so heartbreaking in that scene on the boat and when her demise comes yeah i just feel for her um shelly was just an otherworldly talent yeah i mean that i think that's the best that's the best um way to put it is she's such a force and you you know again this is early in her career and movie star just pops off when Shelly's on screen and uh yeah I wish people remembered this role more I mean I know that she's known for her two Oscar wins and you know people know her from Roseanne and you know all that good stuff but this is one I feel like people need to revisit and really appreciate I feel like the real ones know uh because I mean A Place in the Sun I think is maybe not as watched as Streetcar and African Queen but I feel like it's a pretty well-known-ish movie from this time. But, um, yeah, it's definitely one I think people should check out if they haven't. Because I think, not only Shelley, I think Monty Clift is very good in this. Um, yeah. I think Elizabeth Taylor's pretty good. She's not the standout for me. Um, she's gorgeous as hell, because obviously. But um, I don't know. I think Monty m might be my winner and lead actor this year. I don't know about you. I haven't seen all the nominees um, in that lineup, but of what I've seen, Monty might be it for me. I would have to look at, actually, let me, let, let's do this in real time. Let me see who so far, who I've seen. Cause I know I've got Frederick March from Death of a Salesman and, mm -hmm. 
obviously Marlon Brando for Streetcar. Um, I think Arthur, is it Arthur Kennedy? For Bright Victory. And then I can't remember who the fifth person is. So. Oh, uh, obviously Humphrey Bogart. He, he's the winner. Right. So I haven't seen Arthur Kennedy. Um, yeah, I would have to agree. I think Monty would be thus far my winner. Yeah. Monty's yeah. damn good in this, and so is Shelley. Yeah. Yeah, they're both really damn good. Yeah. So next we have Jane Wyman, nominated for The Blue Veil. This is her third of four nominations. Going into this, uh, she is a bit of a threat. She wins the Golden Globe and the Laurel Award. And she plays Louise, a young widow who loses a child at birth, uh, then becomes a children's nurse, moving from family to family over the course of many years. So how do you feel about Jane in The Blue Veil? Um, so this was my second inter, or I should say introduction, but passing with Jane Wyman, because we just talked about her in 1954 for Magnificent Obsession. And I, so I had like, I guess, preconceived notions of what type of actor she would be or what she could do, which is never a good thing, because I don't think there are many actors who stay in character for each role. There are some, but she is not one of them. Um, again, a movie that does not exist, but when you actually get to experience this non-existent movie, um, the story is quite sad. It's tragic. It's, uh, you know, right off the bat, she loses her husband in World War One, and, you know, she loses her newborn baby. And it's like, well, what what does she do with her life? Then she figures if she can't have her own child from the womb to arm, she... Uh, she becomes a nanny of many other kids and raises other kids. So, like, you know, you experience this journey with her. And by the time, you know, I guess I would say the big climax happens, you know, she's an old woman. We followed her around for many years. And she decides that she's going to take care of this kid full time because her the mom is being neglectful. So, you know, it was one of those things where the possible, you know, the police pull her in. There's this possibility of her, um, uh, getting arrested and but the mom understands what she did and the officer understands and he's like you know something that would only happen I feel like at this certain a period of time would be like yeah just let her go um but I also understand the sentiment um and then obviously you know she's surprised in the end by all the kids grown up with a reunion of the kids she took care of and you know, Jane Wyman puts everything she has into this. Um, you know, she's been quoted at saying this was her finest acting job. And thus far, I mean, I've only seen two films of hers, but this is definitely better work than what she did in Magnificent Obsession. Um, I like this one a lot. I actually kind of do, too. I don't know if I like it better than Magnificent Obsession, because it's honestly hard to compare the two. Um, because one is, you know, straight up melodrama. And while and that being Magnificent Obsession. And while this one has sort of elements of that, I don't think it quite goes that far. Um, but I think both work, and Jane Wyman works in both. There's a little bit more um, of an interior to this character. Um, I mean, once again, this is a very sad person who's sort of harboring a lot of pain. Um, her husband died in war, and then she loses the child at birth, and she's basically left alone in the world with nothing. 
and you know being a woman in this time period um she didn't have very many options so she basically becomes a a live-in nurse nanny to these wealthy couples and has a ton of sort of surrogate spirit children over the course of her career who she raises until they're too old for her and um I, I really kind of like this one. It's not one that I expected to like when I looked it up and read what it was about. Oh, that's, that sounds a little too sappy and sentimental for me. And it does have some sappy, sentimental moments. Like you mentioned the reunion at the end um, that kind of veers into that territory. But I think it ultimately works and it makes sense um, for this narrative. But um, I think Jane Wyman is really digging deep with this one. Um, as opposed to, you know, painting a portrait on the outside like she does with other roles. Not that that's a bad thing. That's just a different type of style. She's going a little bit more to into the heart and going inward, which I really dig here. Um, I wish this movie was more accessible because, I mean, like we've said a few times, it, it does, it's not really... <laughs> Um, widely seen for a reason, and that's that it basically doesn't exist anymore. Um, I wish someone would pull it out of whatever well it's stuck in, because I think Jane Wyman is doing some wonderful work here, and I can see why someone like her would say that this is one of her finest hours. You can tell that she really cares about this character and this story. Yeah, it's so interesting to have two acting nominations from this movie, and they couldn't be any more different. Mm -hmm. Like, it's insane. It doesn't even feel like talking about Joan to talking about Jane, that they would come from the same type of movie, but they do, and it works. Yeah, they really balance each other out. Um, I wonder how how this movie hit audiences at this time, with you know World War II still being fresh in people's memories. And when this movie begins, it's World War I. That's the war that takes her husband's life. And so I wonder how many how many wounds this movie opened um, for audiences in 1951. So perhaps um, Jane had that going for her. Um, it's just an interesting little bit of context, I guess, to think about. Yeah, for sure. And I agree. Like the, the movie on paper doesn't really work i like i waited to watch this movie last and i was like all right i guess i'll get into it and then it was actually my favorite of all the movies oh really yeah i did not expect to like the movie wise to like like it as much as i did okay right and that was weird um so yeah it was just and who a, a movie about kids me Come on. Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but no, I did. I ended up liking this movie the most. And it kind of made me sad that it's, again, the hardest one to find. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I liked the movie more than I expected to, but I, st I still didn't love the film itself. But I quite admire the two performances that were nominated from it. Fair. Absolutely. Well, we've reached that point. Mm -hmm. Anything else to say? I think we can jump into the ranking. Well, before we jump into the rankings, we have another message from longtime subscriber, Academy honorary Academy Queen, done the show twice, 
three times maybe twice mm, i want to say twice my brain ever since turning 30 not what it used to i'm still alicing now um <laughs> but uh christoph has a message from us or for us so let's take a listen hello brendan hello joey here's christoph i'm so sorry to see your podcast go because i am going to miss your irreverence and unpredictability the fact that you could approach the 1950 lineup with an unprejudiced mind and declare Eleanor Parker your winner, or sing the praises of Janet Sussman and Nicholas and Alexandra. These surprising takes are just refreshing, even although they're obviously wrong. I'm also going to miss Brandon's acerbic humor and the way he could tell everything you need to know about his take on The Darkest Hour by the way he pronounces Gary Old Man. I see you go with such a heavy heart. What a guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Christoph, that was so nice of you, and we love you, and thank you so much for being here throughout all of this. It really means a lot. He's been putting up with our shit since the 1970s. Absolutely. All right. Let us remind uh, everyone listening who the supporting actress nominees were. Again, you had Kim Hunter in A Streetcar Named Desire. Joan Blondell in The Blue Veil, Mildred Dunnock in Death of a Salesman, Thelma Ritter in The Mating Season, and Lee Grant in Detective Story. Number five is Thelma Ritter for Category Fraud in The Mating Season. This movie is about her. This movie is, without her, this movie completely doesn't exist. I mean, she is the mating season of the mating season. She is the, the, she is the, the in the mating season. So why is she in supporting? That's what I want to know. What do you say? Yes. Thelma Ritter is also number five for category fraud. Um, I think Miriam Hopkins should be the supporting nominee from this film because she is fucking hysterical. Um, and Thelma Ritter, I wish she had been nominated in the lead category because she is very good in this film, but um, not a supporting player. Yes, and I will tell you right now, if Thelma Ritter had been in lead, she would have been my winner. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Probably be two or three for me. Okay, all right. Well, uh, number four is Lee Grant. Listen, uh, Lee, Thelma's there, so she takes five, but I don't know what you're doing here, my love. And, uh, yep, I think her best uh, nomination is still the landlord, so Lee Grant's at four. My number four is Joan Blondell, um, who I quite like in uh, The Blue Veil. So she's not number four because I dislike her. There's just something about the other ones who I gravitate a little bit more toward. Um, I love the fire and zest she brings to this movie and a different flavor of sadness. Uh, The Blue Veil is already kind of sad. It starts out very sad. But when she comes in and we learn about her struggles as a mother and as a career woman, it uh, takes on a new meaning. But um, there's just something about the other three that I like a little bit more, a little bit more my taste. So Joan is my number four. Well, number three for me is Kim Hunter. Um, Streetcar Named Desire, she's not the worst thing in it, um, but she's also not the best. Shout out again to Carl Molden. Um, But Kim Hunter in this lineup, I feel like three is pretty fair. Um, Let's say that um, Thelma Brader was actually supporting. I would still put Kim at three because I think she's middle of the road. She's not bad. She's not good. She's there. So Kim's at three. Uh, Mike? 
two and three are a bit interchangeable depending on my mood. They're two very different performances, but right now I'm putting Lee Grant at number three for Detective Story. I like what she brings to this story. Um, there's a lot of dissonance going on in this film version of this script. Uh, seems to be a lot of ideas at odds with each other, and I find that very fascinating um, as a cinephile. And I think Lee Grant brings a lot of humor uh, to this story that, frankly, really needs it. But um, I guess today she's my number three. Well, that leaves uh, my number two to Joan Blondell, which means I'm giving Mildred Dunnock uh, the number one choice. I think this should have been Mildred's win. Um, with Joan, I absolutely love her here. She is fantastic. She is absolutely, without a doubt, so good in this movie. I was sold on Joan the whole time. I was sold on Mildred the entire time as well. This was a do I do a very, I feel like switcheroo at the last second, but I'm confident with this pick here. This is not going to be a Brenda Bleth and Kathy Bates moment. So Joan Blundell's too. Mildred Dunnick though is fantastic in Death of a Salesman. She's so good. She has so much to do. She is every emotion color in the box she's so good um i really think this should have been her win this is far better than her baby doll nomination and uh yeah she's my winner my runner up is kim hunter for streetcar named desire um earlier when i said that she seems to be the one that doesn't quite get brought up as much as the other three nominated in her film i didn't mean that as a diss because i actually quite like that I like that Kim Hunter is a bit of a chameleon in this movie and does basically what, what needs to be done to make the scene work and to be a perfect scene partner for whoever she's acting with, um, whether it's Marlon Brando or Vivian Lee, et cetera. And there's never really a false note for me in this performance. This seems very true to life, very lived in. I think Kim Hunter knows exactly who Stella is. She knows all of Stella's contradictions um, and all the things that make her the complicated woman that she is. Um, but there's something about Mildred Dunnock in Death of a Salesman that really won me over um, on multiple levels. I really love how integral she is to how this story works. Um, it feels like one of those performances, like I mentioned Olivia Coleman earlier, um, also Philip Seymour Hoffman and Doubt, how if something is off about a certain performance, everything else around them sort of crumbles. And I think Mildred Dunnock's performance in Death of a Salesman is one of those. Um, I think Frederick March is as good as he is because of Mildred Dunnock's performance. And the film itself is as good as it is because of Mildred Dunnock's performance. Um, there's so many different ways to read her, and there's so many things you can project onto her, etc. There's just so much going on that I am just obsessed with. And this is one that I, I look forward to revisiting someday. So Mildred Dunnock is my winner for Death of a Salesman. I am so happy I got one right for you. <laughs> I honestly wasn't sure how you'd feel about her. Like when I watched it, I was like, Joey's either going to be surprisingly in love with this, or he's going to say she's doing nothing. There's no in-between. <laughs> and I honestly wasn't sure where you'd go with it. So I'm glad I was surprised. Hey, me too, me too. Because, again, it's just 
it's nice to get one right for you. <laughs> so if I get Vivian Lee right as well, I'm going to be like, yeah. Imagine if I was like Eleanor Parker. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, where are you going with this? Well, as a reminder, we have Vivian Lee and a streetcar named Desire. Um, Jane Wyman for The Blue Veil, uh, Eleanor Parker for Detective Story, Shelley Winters for Place in the Sun, and Catherine Hepburn for The African Queen. And I am putting Eleanor Parker at number five because she has no business being in this category, even though she is doing some really fine work with the two pages of script that she was given. I am putting Shelley Winters at five because she is a category fraud placement for me. Um, Shelley Winters is very much a supporting role here, which breaks my heart to do because she is fantastic. Um, This role emotionally got to me and it was such a thrill to watch and care so much about this character and only Shelley Winters could have brought her to life. So I am putting Shelly Winters with the category fraud at five. Shelly Winters is my number four, also for category reasons. I decided to put her above Eleanor Parker because I think it's a, I think it's a better performance and it's less egregious. Um, Eleanor Parker is way more supporting than Shelly, or however you want to word that. Um, so that's how Shelly got to number four instead of five. But I think Shelly is doing beautiful work here. If we're just looking at performance and not category placement, um, she could very easily be at least two spots higher for me in this lineup. Well, I am putting the other category fraud of Eleanor Parker, so we're just switching here, um, at four. Every time I've done uh, category fraud placements, I always tell people, like, this is the category fraud. My number five is who I think was, was, you know, less was giving me less than who I put above them. As much as I was connected to Shelley Winters' acting here, Eleanor Parker just has, maybe this is this person who has a spell on me, like Vivian Lee's people for her. Um, because I am always such, in an, I'm such in an enthralled state every time I see Eleanor Parker on screen. Whatever she does just works for me. Um, so I would like to say, had she been in supporting, she would have been my winner, and Thelma would have been my winner in lead. So Eleanor Parker is fantastic. Her her story arch is, or story arc is um heartbreaking and really, I mean, are there, I got scared for her. I thought Kirk Douglas was gonna beat the shit out of her in that in that fucking police station. So like. I, I was just with her the whole way. Between Winters and Parker, they're both just tragic characters, and at least Eleanor makes it out alive. Mm-hmm. I remember you were also pretty fond of her in um, Sound of Music, which she was not nominated for, but probably should have been. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, my number three is going to Catherine Hepburn for uh, The African Queen. I'm just always left wanting more. I guess I'm just still hungry. Anytime I, I watch this movie and um, I don't know, there, I just I just need more Catherine. So she's getting my number three. Vivian Lee is so goddamn lucky that we have some category frauds here. Um, this is not a Kim Hunter three where it's just, you know, she's middle of the road. Vivian Lee is like negative 87,000 for me, but I have to put her somewhere. So I guess three works. 
my runner up is Jane Wyman for the Blue Veil. Um, I think this is a wonderful performance that I wish more people could see. Because um, I know we often think of Jane Wyman as, you know, the melodrama actress. And she very much is, and she's very good at it. That's not a diss whatsoever. Um, I know some people hear melodrama and that's like a negative to them. But if you're good at it, you're good at it. And uh, Jane Wyman was the queen of them. But here in the Blue Veil, she's going in a different direction with her performance style. And I found that very refreshing and I quite liked it. And uh, she managed to um, make me like a movie that I planned on not really liking at all. So that was a pleasant surprise. So she got to my number two spot. But yeah, Vivian Lee in A Streetcar Named Desire, I'm kind of obsessed with this performance. And I see why so many other people are too. And I also see why a lot of people aren't. And in a weird way, that kind of makes me like it even more. Um, so yeah, I don't know what can be said that hasn't been said already, but Vivian Lee in Streetcar is giving a magnificent performance, love it or hate it. It's It gets people talking. It does get a people talking. Oh my God, I got both right for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very rare does that happen for me, so I'm celebrating that one. Okay. My runner-up is Catherine Hepburn, which means I am giving Jane Wyman the win. Catherine Hepburn really took me on a journey here. I was pleasantly pleased with how much I I really liked her, despite not liking the movie. Um, and you know what? Good for her. She was transitioning from the 40s into the 50s. You know, I think she did Summertime after this, which is a very different type of Catherine Hepburn as well. So, you know, she's my number two. But Jane Wyman, I was bawling to this performance. This is what I was talking about earlier. The, Jane Wyman in the Blue Veil has, has become one of my favorite all-time nominations. I That end scene with all the grown-up kids just gutted me. I was a blubbering mess. I also think a lot of it, too, is watching a woman fight for a kid that's not even hers when I had a mom who, like, threw me to the side. Like, I kind of really connected with the story, and I think that's why I liked the movie as much as I did, because in a way it was, like, therapy time. In a way, in a way it was, like, me connecting to that little kid who had a mother figure who actually wanted him so it was like me that's what i wanted the entire time so i loved this movie if this ever gets a a updated release i am buying a copy i jane wyman's performance in this just blew my mind and it has definitely become in my top 10 of best nominations of all time in the in the actress category so yeah that was it (laughs) Yeah, so I've got uh, Vivian Lee and Mildred Dunnock because I said I, I was feeling the Tennessee Williams-Arthur Miller one-two punch this year. And I am feeling Jane Wyman and Mildred Dunnock because Mildred is a boss-ass bitch and Jane Wyman pulled at my heartstrings. Yes. Yes. All right. Brandon, we have one more episode to go. I I feel like it's the final episode. We should announce it together. Are you ready? Okay. We're the saying of, the year? We'll say the class of and then the year. Okay, we'll see how well this goes. On the count of three, ready? Our final episode for the regular series of Academy Queens will be one, two, three. The class class of 1945. (laughs) Nailed it. Yes, the class of 1945. 
the class of 1945. Oh, Mildred Pierce. Yes, one of the winners who a lot of people say is one of the worthiest of the lead actress trophy. And we, of course, will be the deciders of that. Yes. Um, It also gives me the chance to I I have to really quick do this in in real time again I'm pretty sure Mildred Pierce is the only film from this lineup I've ever seen from both categories oh really let me look really quick oh it's a return Jean uh, Jean Tierney from the mating season Uh, she's in here for leave her to heaven but uh, let's see yeah it's the only one I've seen I've never seen the others wow we got a lot of homework for this Wow. Well, thankfully, we have, like, three nominees from Mildred Pierce right there, so. Okay, is The Bells of St. Mary's, is that the sequel, or is that the first one? To is what the, film? No, like, isn't The Bells of St. Mary's, like, isn't there, there's, like, a sequel film, or it's the, um, please hold. Bells of St. For Whom the Bell Tolls. Hold on, she plays Maria in that one. Oh, no, The Bells of St. Mary's, I think that's... That's Bing Crosby's uh, Father O'Malley, so this is a sequel to Going My Way. Wait, so do I have to see Going My Way? Huh, that always sucks. <laughs> wait, wait, what? Yeah, Father O'Malley is uh, his character from Going My Way a year prior. Mm. Going My Way is um, not good, in my opinion, but I'm sure there's people out there that like it. I, I feel like I have to watch the first one now. I will not be revisiting it, but, um, yeah. Barry Fitzgerald, nominated for lead and supporting actor for his role in that film. Because, Uh, I guess, a loophole in the rules or whatever. Yikes, bikes. Name the movie. Can you name the movie? Yikes, bikes. No. (laughs) That's the wedding singer. Oh, I don't understand the question, and I refuse to answer it. <laughs> Lucille. All right. Well, this has been fun. I am looking forward to getting down and gritty with the with the Mildred Pierce ladies in as a whole, because yes. all three are fascinating to talk about. I'm also excited to ha- actually have some like solid homework with uh, both categories. But you know it's going to be sentimental as shit on this last one, and I'm just going to get corny as fuck because that's who I am. It's because you are a Pisces, as you are wont to say. I am a Pisces. It's so sad. It's it's sad and exciting. It's three plus years of work. Do you know literally yesterday the reveal of our logo popped across the screen on my Facebook that we revealed it and said the show is premiering in three weeks? Oh, wow. Yes. Sounds about right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is three years of work and, you know, going on this adventure and it's all coming to a close in the same month we premiered. That's fucking weird, actually, thinking about it. Oh, yeah, because I think we recorded our first episodes in January and we held on to them until about March. Mm -hmm. We were figuring out what the hell we were doing. Yeah. Wow. What a storybook ending. We're ending it the same time we began it. Oh, wow. Did not plan that. That just happened. That literally was not planned. But um, until next time, Brandon, do you have anything else? Um, I don't think so. All right. Well, with that, uh, without further ado, I am Joey Gentile. And I'm Brandon Stanwyck. 
And this has been Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the Academy Awards per decade per category. And this has been the class of 1951. On the count of three, we're going to give a big goodbye. Ready? One, two, three. Goodbye. Bye.